You are listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about psychospiritual and psychosocial aspects of end-of-life care. And now, here is your host, Saul. Thank you very much for joining us on this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. I'm Saul Ebema. My guest today is Professor Christopher Hamilton. He's the Professor of Philosophy and Religion at King's College in London. Professor Hamilton, welcome to the show. Thank you very much indeed. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Where did you grow up? So I grew up um, in the south of England, about as far south as you can get actually in Portsmouth, which for those who don't know, it is a, it's about 70 miles more or less due south of uh, London, just along the coast from Brighton. So it's a seaside place. Um, so I grew up really with the sea, actually, quite close to to where I where I lived, and my school was right um, by the, what you would call high school. Secondary school was right close to the to the sea, and I remember on one occasion, I used to take the bus to go to school, and on one occasion, I arrived a bit early and went and had a swim in the sea before going to school, which, believe me, in the south of England, was absolutely freezing, but oh, <laughs> it was my. nice. So you've grown up to become one of the finest academics. So in your formative years, uh, who influenced you the most? Well, I think actually, um, to be perfectly honest, the person who influenced me the most in terms of you know, intellectual life, academic life, in terms of being interested in, in books and so on, and ideas was a teacher of mine and in fact he was a teacher of uh, French and then later uh, German uh, his name was Mr Potter and he was amazingly dynamic in his teaching I went to an all boys school and the boys in the school absolutely loved him and he had this amazing capacity to be enormous fun uh, you know we we spent a lot of the lessons, you know, really enjoying it and sometimes laughing, but with tremendous rigor as well and tremendous, you know, he was really serious about languages. And I think without my even really noticing it, he had a really important influence on me because I had this sense of um, the importance of learning and getting things right and so on, but with great fun as well. And that combination I think stayed with me enormously through, you know, through later life. And uh, I tried to to bring that kind of thing to my teaching at the university uh, these days. So today we'll be exploring your philosophical thoughts on the good life and the good death. You know, I've been thinking a lot about life. Uh, In a sense, we live and we die. We don't choose where we are born. We don't choose when we die. Some people die very young. Other people die very old. And Mm. all these, (laughs) there's a lot of vulnerability to chance. What are your thoughts about life? Well, I certainly certainly agree with you about that that question of chance Um, and the sense of luck, good luck, bad luck. Um, I mean, I think that a great deal of what happens to us in life is is a matter of good luck and bad luck, um, m- much more than we actually like to acknowledge. And I guess I think one thing is trying to remember that, because I think actually that 
can sometimes give one a kind a certain kind of distance from problems and difficulties you know if if bad things happen sometimes it's important to be able to say well it just happened you know there was no particular reason and one has to try and make something obvious of course if it's if it's a piece of pain or suffering and so on um and i think i mean in my own life if i may say this uh, i actually uh, discovered um when i was 38 that uh the identity of my true father, because in fact I discovered that my mother had had an affair with a man, and I was I'm the product of that affair. So my brothers and sister, in fact, turned out to be um, half brothers and and a half sister. And then my real father has some uh, children on on his side with his mother. So uh, you know that was a that was a really really important moment in my life because. Um, exactly as you say, that sense of complete chance, you know, it just was chance that my mother happened to have this relationship. And I certainly didn't condemn her for having the relationship. These things happen, people are weak, people make mistakes and so on. But it left me with an extremely strong sense of a a shift in my identity, of the way in which I had not known, as I say, I only discovered this when I was 38, so I'd lived, you know, a fair bit of my life by then. Um, so trying to make the best of that. And one, one thing is that when I told, at the time, I didn't talk about it much because I felt rather ashamed. But later, when I started to talk to people, many of them asked me, had I been very angry with my brothers and my sister? And in fact, I hadn't, because I realised that they were trying to protect me, that, you know, that was why, because they knew about my real father. Mm. And... And I think that was because, so seeing the whole thing in context and trying to understand, you know, other people's motivations was really, really important for me. And I guess that's something that I think is, with a bit of luck, I've learned from philosophy, because, you know, having read many, many books and studied many thinkers, the sense of the variety of different forms of human life and how people have lived and so on has given me, a, you know, a very acute sense that this is you know, a strange thing that happened to me, but lots of stranger things happen to other people. And, you know, the key is to make something of it, to do something with it, not just as it were, sit there and, you know, and let it fester because it, you know, it could do that. And and one is perhaps tempted to do that. So, so yes, I, I have a very, very strong sense of the contingency of things of luck and chance. Yes. Thanks for your vulnerability with our audience. And, um, on the question of life and death, are life and death straightforward alternatives? Well, I don't believe in any life after this, but I don't therefore think that life and death are straightforward, straightforward alternatives in the sense that um, I think I have a strong sense of the presence of death in life. What I mean by that is partly the sense that one lives one's life knowing that it's short. I think I think we all get to a point in life where, you know, we we um, we realise the shortness of life. I mean, some of my students who are 18, 19, 20 years of age, of course, they know they're going to die, but for them it's just a theoretical something that might happen <laughs> one day. You know, when you get to my age, you think, well, actually, I've had more than half of my life. What have I done with it and what am I going to do with the rest? And that seems like a very pressing, you know, spiritual and existential question. So in that sense, I think death is present in life 
as one makes choices, as one tries to lead one's life, as one tries to see how it is that one has lived up up until now, and could one improve things? Could one be, you know, more honest, more decent, or, or, or you know, or it might be. I mean, I got to a point in my life, for example, where I'd realised I'd invested a huge amount of my time in in reading and writing and books and so on. And I give myself more time now to do other things like um, do a bit of gardening or just go out walking, um, you know, to 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 realise that that's something that didn't wasn't really in my life so much before because I was so focused on, you know, on my studies and so on. Um, so I think that sense of the shortness of life is something that comes as one as one gets older. And in that sense, I think death is present all the time. And of course, there's the other fact that... Mm. We all know this, uh, though we forget it all the time. One could walk out of the house and be run over by a car tomorrow or something, you know, or just a heart attack or, you know. And uh, at my age, there are some people I know, um, well, for example, only yesterday I had a message from my university where I teach to tell me that a, a colleague of mine in another department who was probably about 10 years older than I am, had died after a long illness, you know. So that I think there's, I think as one gets older, that very strong sense of what am I actually doing with my life? Am I leading the kind of life I want to lead? Am I leading the kind of life such that I can look back on it later and think, I'm glad I did this, you know, not be full of regrets and so on. In that sense, death I think is very, very present um, in life, uh, and not just as it were a thing at the end that you know, we can, we can forget about. Um, and in fact, my, one of my favorite philosophers, the great Renaissance uh, thinker Montaigne says, um, says in one of his essays that, um, what one should do, he claims, I think that the Egyptian, the ancient Egyptians did this. I'm not sure they actually did, but anyway, that they would bring into a, a party or a festival or something or some moment of celebration, they would bring in a dead body to remind those who were enjoying themselves <laughs> that, uh, you know, this is the end. And I did, I did actually have a wonderful thing where a student of mine, when he left the university, invited me to a, invited me to a party, his birthday party. And he said, do please come along, but please don't bring a dead body with you. So, <laughs> but you know that sense of being aware, but not too aware, because you don't want to be kind of, you know, anxious the whole time. But just being aware of, you know, what you're doing with your life. I think that's really, really important. Yeah, you know, in our culture, you hear words like "live life to the fullest," and probably that means live life well. But is is living life to the fullest or living well even possible? Or what is it? <laughs> well, gosh, such a such a big question. Well, I mean, I do think we live in a culture, I mean, many, many people have said this, a, a culture which focuses on things that are ephemeral, that, that, that are quite shallow, you know, status, money, you know, wealth, um, property, all those kinds of things. Um, and I think it's really, really important to try and step back from that and see, is this stuff actually good for me? Do I really care about this? Um, and for me, the thing that seems much more important is a kind of richness of experience. 
And I do think that the richness of experience is more important than the length of life. You know, we live in a culture, of course, that wants to prolong life as long for as long for each of us as long as possible. And I, I mean, don't get me wrong, I completely understand that. And I'm sure that, you know, when I get to a point where I might be facing, you know, my imminent dem- demise, I'll want to carry on. But I do think um, that some of the thinkers who've really influenced me such as uh, George Orwell or Albert Camus. These were thinkers who lived quite short lives, but they had what Orwell calls a fidelity to the surface of life, a kind of love for what's here and now. Um, And I do think we have a tendency to miss that. You know, we have a tendency to rush by thinking that other things are more important. Whereas, and this goes back to my point, I think earlier about, um, you know, that now I try and do some work in my garden and things like that. Just taking some more time over some of these smaller things, I think is really, really important. And we and we miss them all the time. You know, we just miss them in the kind of frenetic activity of career and so on. And of course, I don't exclude myself from that. But I do think it's try, it's good to try and slow one slow oneself down a, a little bit and i think also the other thing that's really important is to try and find you know what do i really care about um and that's really really hard i know that when i say to my you know young students knowing what you want in life is one of the most difficult things they often look at me a little bit baffled because at 18 you think you know what you want and it's all reasonably <laughs> clear but Knowing what you really want as opposed to what you think you want, um, you know, which can often be just following the mass of people who, you know, tell you what you want and so on. I mean, I think that's 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 important. And I think that um, a further aspect of that that's meant a lot to me is, you know, as I've suggested, my life hasn't always been extremely easy, uh, to say the least. But one thing I have done is to try and see how extraordinarily interesting my life has been. Um, And I think taking interest even in the difficult moments, uh, even in those moments of sadness and loss and so on, and trying to think them through is an immensely valuable thing. Um, And of course, our natural reaction is just to want them to stop, to want to get rid of them. But if we can, as it were, in a certain kind of way, in a more mindful way, if you like, look them in the face and try and make something of them and that's the thing that each person would do for him or herself separately of course that um i think that can help enormously and i certainly think that the experience i had for example with my father was extremely painful at the time but i think it's enriched me in enriched my sense of um well the notion of the family of of love of fidelity, of um, of honesty, all of those kinds of notions for me changed as a result of that, and and I hope in a in a richer way. So <clears throat> I think looking at looking at the interest of one's life is probably probably more important than you know, as it were, seeking after happiness, which of course we know is an extremely elusive notion. With that, we'll take a little break. Again, my guest is Professor Christopher Hamilton. He's a professor of philosophy and religion at King's College in London. We'll be right back. Continuing to be a leader in the field of spiritual care at the end of life, 
Hospice Chaplaincy provides high-quality professional development webinars that will improve your practice of spiritual care at the end of life. Check out our latest webinars at www.hospicechaplaincy.com. I'm Sole Bem, and we continue our conversation with Dr. Hamilton. Uh, you wrote a book, Middle Age, The Art of Living Well. What was the motivation behind that? After I had discovered um, about my father, what I did was I, I started writing, as I mentioned earlier, and I had some fragments of ideas. And then somebody contacted me, who was the general editor of that series of books, and said he was interested in my writing something. Um, actually, he originally wanted me to write a book on the philosophy of sex. And I said, thank you, thanks, no, but no. Um, and I then told him, I then told him a bit of my story, as I have to you, um, and said, would you like me to try and do something along those lines, work along those lines? Um, and he said, yes. So the book came out of a very personal experience, um, though, of course, I've discovered that there are plenty of other people who've had similar experiences. If one starts looking on the internet at, at people who discover the identity of their a true identity of their mother or father or whatever. It, there were lots of people like this. Um, and so at one level, it's a very personal experience, or, and then one that is in, meets with those other people who've had similar experiences. But what I was trying to do in the book was take stock of the idea of middle age, take stock of the idea of that sense of time running out, the sense at 38 that I'd probably lived, you know, close to perhaps even more than half of my life, looking back and thinking, what had I done with my life? And thinking about many of the emotions that come up from that experience of being in middle age. So one of them is, of course, that one spends a great deal of time uh, early in life trying to find a place in life, a, a job, some security, um, you know, uh, maybe a husband or a wife or having children. And a very, very common experience that people have, as we know, um, in middle age is to find that they have got all these things, that they've worked hard to get that, you know, a stable job and so on. And with a bit of luck, that's what one has. But then it feels like a cage. It feels like I'm stuck. I'm stuck in this um, place, this role in my life, and there's nothing else I can do. There's the, you know, the earlier dreams I had of being somebody else or doing something, you know, doing something else, they're gone. I can no longer, you know, in my own case, for example, I had very early in my life thought at one point of going into acting or maybe into the law. These are now no longer possible at all. Um, in fact, it, Virginia Woolf in her uh, novel, The Waves, has a character called Bernard, and Bernard has similar thoughts about middle age. He talks about being wedged into a puzzle. So, the, you know, this is my role in life. I'm here. This was the thing I wanted. But now what do I do with it? And so I was very, one of the things I was looking at were these experiences of feeling trapped um, and the sense of nostalgia, the sense of loss that can come from that, time having passed, opportunities having passed, opportunities no longer being available. 
together with the sense that one has in middle age of a great deal of of many obligations of course the, you know there are lots of obligations that come with whatever job or role one has in life so there can be nostalgia and there can be a certain amount of fear um and what i was trying to do in the book was to explore these from a, a philosophical point of view to look at how can we make better sense of them so one thing i often say to my students when they first study philosophy is uh, because they find philosophy confusing as i say that's good it's good that they find it's confusing uh, the crucial thing is to make that confusion productive is to be able to do something with it. So what I was trying to do was to take some of those um, emotions of, of nostalgia, loss, um, and, and of course grief as well, because many people by the time of middle age, are, middle age are having to live with the fact that they may have lost one or both parents. Um, uh, and although I don't myself have children, also the the responsibilities of ch of childhood uh, of being of, of looking after children. So <clears throat> that's what I was trying to do. I was trying to think how to make these uh, these experiences uh, productive. And I think what the one of the main things I did try to do with the book by way of doing that was to put this in the context of other people's lives and see how other people have made sense of them, how they lived with their fears, lived with their anxieties, lived with their worries, how they turned those things into reflections on our condition as human beings. So one of my favorite writers is the 18th century man of letters, uh, Samuel Johnson, um, who himself experienced enormous problems throughout his life and perhaps particularly in middle age and he made many of these things many of these anxieties and fears productive by using them to think about his own condition and his own condition with others and if there's one thing I think that came out of all of that for me uh, it is a sense of how extremely vulnerable human beings are and how all of us go through life wounded hurt with pains with forms of suffering and sometimes we talk about them but most of the time we don't most of the time in our life we conceal them we don't want to bother other people with them we might talk about them a bit in the context you know the intimate context of the family but we tend not to talk about them you know in a work context for example and perhaps only with our very best closest most intimate friends but for me um, that experience, um, going through that experience of middle age in the particular way I did, and perhaps still am, I hope I'm not <laughs> too old, <laughs> um, has given me this very, very strong sense um, that uh, at times that being aware of other people, the burden that other people carry to me is an extremely important thing. And I think what it's done is it's enabled me sometimes when I see people, for example, who are behaving badly or who are difficult, to try and get some distance because I recognize that probably somewhere behind the way they're behaving is a form of suffering or pain and so on. And they're not capable or brave enough or whatever to say it. So one has to assume this. So I think in a way when I approach all human beings i approach them with that sense uh, not of course that that's the only important thing about them but that we are weak vulnerable fragile wounded creatures 
And remembering that, I think, generates helps to generate a kind of tolerance, perhaps a kind of pity for people, which is helpful. And so I think that was the thing I wanted to come out of that book to try and say, you know, we're all in, we're all like this in different ways. And if I may just add this, um, from time to time, I still, although I published the book um, many years ago now, 20 odd years ago, um, I still get emails occasionally from people who who say, oh, I've come across your book and I liked it enormously. And my experiences have been very different. But the emotions that you talk about are very similar. Mm. And I think they draw some, well, a certain amount of consolation or comfort from just seeing somebody else trying to think through some of these things. Yeah. You know, here in the United States, you hear a lot about the midlife crisis. Is it a male <laughs> phenomenon? What is the midlife crisis? <laughs> Why? Well, of course, the the classic the classic is the middle aged man who, you know, leaves his wife and kids and goes off with somebody twenty years younger or buys a ridiculous <laughs> sports car or something like that. Um, it's very difficult to know. I mean, the the term the midlife crisis. Um, as I recall, wasn't in fact coined until um, about 1965 in a a particular piece of research, though of course there was this phenomenon uh, before. I think women experience it too. I think women experience it too. But I think um, uh, probably men have talked about it more uh, than women. Whether they're more susceptible to it, I I really don't know. I wish I did know. I mean, it's a very good question. Um, If I think about my friends, I would say that both men and women go through it. Maybe they manifest it in, in in different ways. Maybe women are slightly more sensible about coping with it. I don't know. But uh, Professor, what is the motivation? Is it a search for meaning, a search for desire, power? What is the motivation behind this? Well, I, th- I think it's to do with meaning. I think I think the fundamental um, my view is that human beings are meaning seeking creatures. You know, whatever we do, we we want to find meaning in it, um, and the meaning might simply be it satisfies some desires of mine. You know, and it's a pleasant evening together, we're drinking some wine or having a meal together. It can it can be as simple as that. But it seems to me that one of the fundamental differences between human beings and other animals is precisely this desire for meaning. As I sometimes say to my students, you know, you never come home. Um, from having been at work during the day to find your pet cat or pet dog sitting in the corner of the room with his head in his, in his paws saying, oh, I've wasted the day. What have I done with the day? You know, I've frittered it away. I'm not going to do that again. But of course, that's very, very, um, that's a possibility for human beings that we can feel that a day or a week or a month or a few years we've wasted. And when we say we've wasted time, it's because we haven't found anything meaningful in it, which doesn't necessarily mean it has to be, you know, deep and philosophical or whatever, but it's just a sense of time well spent. And my own view is that that's crucial to what human beings are, that they 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 need a sense that what they're doing is meaningful. Now, some people um, are perfectly happy with that, with the idea of meaning, as it were, from day to day or a short period of time. Other people have a need for a sense of meaning that their life as a whole adds up to something. And I think that religious thought 
Christianity, for example, is one of the things that answers to that sense that the, the meaning of my life, the arc of my life, overall can have a meaning if I lead it in a certain kind of way. Other people, as I say, I think are, look look at things in a, in a shorter term perspective, less, as it were, metaphysical, if you like. But I think all of us have that need to, to feel that what we're doing is meaningful. And I think when people go through a midlife crisis, they may perfectly well know that they've got the, in fact, they usually do know that they've achieved the things that they wanted. You know, they wanted the family, they wanted the house, they wanted some, some social standing, they wanted some income, some disposable income, and so on and so forth. And they've got those things. The question is now not, have I got what I want, but does what I want feel meaningful to mm. me? And does what I have feel meaningful to me? And that, I think, is what the midlife crisis is about. It's about feeling that I, yes, I've satisfied my desires, but now how does that add up to, to something meaningful? Which, show, which I think shows it's something extremely interesting about human beings, namely the way in which, to go back to a point I, I was making earlier, finding out what one really wants is really is really meaningful for one is extremely difficult because i can be satisfied by a desire but in the end feel dissatisfied myself so i think it's about i think it's fundamentally about meaning and i think often when people then express that in terms of desires or desire for power and influence and so on i think actually behind that is the desire for something meaningful and yeah. and really perhaps ultimately a fear of the shortness of life with that, we'll take a little break. Again, our guest is Professor Christopher Hamilton. He's a professor of philosophy and religion at King's College in London. We'll be right back. If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. It is a free nationwide peer support service, providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at nami.org. I'm Soleil Berman. We continue our conversation with Dr. Hamilton. Now, in this, in this final segment, I want to talk about death or the good death. How have philosophers dealt with the idea of the good death? Okay, so that's a very, very big question, of course. So one very, very common line that philosophers have taken right from the beginning of, uh, of Greek philosophy is to think about the fear of death. And in fact, I would say that philosophers have taken it to be, perhaps completely reasonably, that our greatest fear is the fear of death. That's the one absolutely immovable thing, the one absolute certainty and that it's terrifying. Uh, we're frightened of extinction or frightened if we believe as a punishment and so on in an afterlife and so on. So one of the things that philosophers have tried to do is to look at reasons to try to be less frightened of death than we perhaps naturally are. And there are plenty of arguments uh, which revolve around that. The central one of which is um, a very famous ancient argument um, to the effect that essentially death is nothing to be feared because when death is, I am no more. So 
you know, once I am dead, there's nothing to fear because I'm my consciousness is extinguished. There's nothing to fear. So then the question now, I'm not completely convinced by that because I think that once one has become, as it were, habituated to, used to the experience of life, one wants it to go on. I mean, I want it to go on now and I would like it to carry on uh, going on. So I think there is a kind of attachment to life which is um, perhaps not fully um, taken into account uh, by by that argument. Um, but the other thing is, of course, uh, that death is connected with the idea of the fear of dying. So, of course, many people, um, in fact, I was talking only recently to somebody about this who said to me that he wasn't frightened of death, but he was frightened of dying, the, 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 the pain of dying, um, going through that that process, um, uh, and I, I I saw this, I've seen this with with people, and it's it's distressing to see, and it's distressing for them. Um, so, I think a good death has to do with this notion of of meaning that we were talking about earlier, and it has something to do with being able to look back in a way on one's life as a life well spent now that doesn't mean a perfect life it doesn't mean a life that doesn't have lots of mistakes i mean we all will finish up at some point recognizing that we've hurt people and been hurt that we've made silly mistakes that we were foolish that we were unwise and so on and so forth but for me one crucial thing about that is to be able to look back and think i lived my own life this was my life, and at least, you know, I made, as it were, my own mistakes. I lived my own uh, life and not somebody else's. Uh, the German philosopher Martin Heidegger in the 20th century talked about this, that that one's death, that nobody else can die one's own, one's death. I, the only person who can die my death is me. And that involves looking back on my life and, and being able to affirm it in some way and there's a really really good story by the russian novelist uh, tolstoy um sorry tolstoy who it's called the death of ivan Ilyich. and it, just very briefly ivan Ilyich is a man who in the course of this novella uh, is dying and he realizes he's dying and as he looks back across his life he realizes that he's been thoughtless that he thought the things that mattered to him were just the things that pe other people cared about, status and, and so on and so forth. And he gradually realises that this is not the case, that he didn't live his own life, that he lived, as it were, somebody else's life because other people assumed or told him that certain things were important. So he never, as it were, took himself by the scruff of the neck and said, what do I really care about? What really matters for me? And that, and I think that's really important. It's not so much a question of getting everything right or being completely fulfilled, or because we'll all of us will die with a sense of, you know, there's no perfect moment for life. How if you can live to eighty, ninety, even a hundred? There's no perfect moment. Mm. But I do think there is the sense to try and have the sense that at least I lived my life, my own life. I tried to be true to myself. I tried to get through things you know with a modicum of decency and so on and i think i think reminding somebody of who's close to death of that kind of thing is is tremendously important because we can all find those things in our lives
So what is the role of religion or spirituality in meaning-making at the end of life? Well, I hope, uh, I mean, for those who, for those who believe, um, for those who are Christians, for example, I hope very much that it's a form of comfort. You know, the fundamental image um, of God is a, is a God of love. And, and I, one reason I respect religion enormously is really because of the notion of forgiveness. Uh, you know, all of us get to a point in life where we realize that we need to be forgiven for things that we've done. Maybe we didn't do them deliberately, but we've certainly let people down, hurt people. We've been inattentive to other people, perhaps when they needed our help and so on. And so we were too busy taken up with our own things. Um, and I think we all get to a point where we feel a need of being forgiven. And I think that the fact that Christianity places forgiveness as one of the key notions at the center of its vision of the world is really, really important. And so I would like to think that um, a, a an adequate Christian response for, to a Christian believer would be, would, would perhaps start from what would certainly include this idea of forgiveness, this idea that um, we can be forgiven for being inadequate, for making mistakes, for being imperfect. That, to me, is really important. And I think that's important also outside of a um, religious context, too. You could say, perhaps, that it's a spiritual but non-religious context. That sense of being fully accepted by another person despite one's frailties and limitations and one's need to be forgiven and so on. And to me, the best kind of human love is, is a kind of love, as I say, even outside of a religious context, that has that element in it, that has that capacity to say, yes, you're fallen, you're weak, you're frail, you're um, uh, in many ways vulnerable, you've made mistakes but I accept you. I accept you as you are. And I think that's an amazing gift that human beings can give to each other because actually all of us, when we look inside, know that it's a bit, at the very least, a bit messy, a bit shabby, not as good as we would like it to be. So I think these notions of love and forgiveness, they can have a place too outside of religion, but also within religion. So I'd like to think that that, that could be there. And I agree with that. A few years ago, we had a, a person on hospice and he was in a lot of pain, and they kept increasing the uh, pain medication dosage, but the pain could not go away until he asked to talk to me. And then he told me, um, I had done something really bad, and now that I'm dying, I'm wondering, can God forgive me? And I told him, yes, God has forgiven you. And you know what? The pain went away, and two days mm -hmm. later, he died peacefully. <laughs> mm. it's, I mean, it is it is extraordinary the need. That's right. I mean, it's a moving story, and it's a, it's an extraordinary the need that human beings have, as it were, to open themselves up. As I said earlier, you know, you're, the, the person about whom you're speaking had kept this all inside, but when one lets it out, I think there can be a tremendous sense of release and relief. And I think forgiveness and love and acceptance, just simple acceptance, are, are crucial in, in, in these things. And as I say, I think that's a gift that human beings can give to each other, even outside of a, a religious context. So, Professor, what are your final thoughts for us? Well, my final thoughts are um, that it's been a tremendous 
pleasure talking to you. Um, and it's been a tremendous pleasure talking to somebody who's coming at things from a similar perspective, but slightly, slightly different. And I guess I, I would have the hope, as I have the hope with my students, that from also from books and from literature and good music and uh, and so on and so forth, that it's possible to find those small pleasures in life that can really make all the difference. I really do think that looking at those small things in life that make up everyday life um, is, is tremendously important. So a, a very um, non-Christian, indeed hostile to Christianity, he was, uh, philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, a German philosopher, nonetheless says at one point, you should wake up each day and ask yourself, what are the small things I can do today to make my life better than it otherwise would be? And he says you should look at the breakfast that you have or the people that you talk to or shall I go for a walk? And I think that's all, there's tremendous wisdom in that sense of looking at those small things and thinking, what can I do each day just to make my life a little bit nicer? Um, and I have to say that for to my day today, one of the things that's made my day a little bit nicer is talking to you, because it's been a tremendous, <laughs> tremendous pleasure um, to have this conversation. Thank you very much. My pleasure. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. That was Dr. Christopher Hamilton. He's a professor of philosophy and religion at King's College in London. You've been listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. Our operation director is Melissa Caprelian. Our studio engineers, Brian Mackinder, and I'm Sol Ebema. Thank you for listening. This show was brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. This episode was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting in Julia, Illinois. You can find our podcast everywhere podcasts are available. If you enjoy listening to the show, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com.